Unmakers. I'm Tim Burrows from Unmade. Welcome to The Unmakers, a series in which I talk to people who are trying to remake the media and marketing world. Each episode, I talk to people who are doing business differently. We're going to meet the startups, the troublemakers and the dreamers who've looked at the communications industry and are trying to find a better way. If you're an unmaker with a story to tell about how you're changing the media and marketing world, I'd love to hear from you. Email me at tim at unmade.media. Before you remake it, you've got to unmake it. In today's first episode of The Unmakers, I talk to the founders of Mutiny, Henry Innes and Matt Ferruja. After leaving big network jobs, they chose not to simply start yet another agency. Instead, they launched a software company, which helps marketers understand the return on investment of their media spend. Rather like Google Analytics helps marketers to understand their digital activity, Mutiny attempts to do the same for marketing investment using the data that brands input into it. Mutiny's been around for more than three years. A few days ago, it closed its first seed round, with investors putting in $2.4 million to help take the company global. The deal valued the company at more than $10 million. I caught up with Henry and Matt in Melbourne a few days before the announcement. I began by asking Henry what this moment will mean for the business. What we had set out to do over the past two to three years was we obviously started the business in a Where it had a look and feel of a consultancy. Um, We always set out with a plan to have SaaS and technology products at the heart of that. SaaS being software as a service. Yeah. So, um, and we proved out a SaaS model with some fairly large enterprise uh, customers who who have renewed a number of times. For us now, the key focus is how do we build. Uh, what what you would describe as a bottom-up SaaS model. So a SaaS model, which is one, driving growth through its own product, and two, it's able to deliver value increasingly in a very automated way, both to our customer base, but also to their agencies. This allows us to build tools on top of the platform that don't just do the core of marketing ROI, but also integrate back into agency workflows and also customer workflows more effectively. Well, we'll get into the the model and also the fundraising a little bit more first. I guess the 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 um, headline description of what Mutiny offers is an ability for marketers and agencies to see how their media spend is being used most effectively. Yeah, it's the best, we call it marketing investment analytics. So in the same way that every single business has Google Analytics for their website, and that is the primary form of measurement that you have uh, within the marketing space, um, we envisage the same thing coming against your marketing pricing media going forward. So marketers will install a platform that acts as a marketing investment analytics platform across all of their activities and allows them to see financial returns. Well, we'll get into that properly in a moment. Matt, let me come back to you then. Let's uh, let's do the origin story. Um, where did the two of you get together then to, uh, to to build Mutiny in the first place? 
So Henry and I met at WPP, uh, I think it was around 2017 or thereabouts. And I, I was managing director of a of YNR creative agency and also worked with a group across WPP, various various you know, clients at the time. And Henry was our national strategy director. And, and we, we struck a kind of, you know, natural working rhythm and and a, and a, sh- a shared, shared interest in real disruption for doing things differently and better. And also shared a frustration with a lack of, you know, a, a lack of, you know, speed to, to things like speed to insight and also evolving capabilities. So then through that shared frustration, I guess, we thought, hey, let's um, let's go and start our own disruption and call it mutiny. And it's still fairly unusual for people who've got big network jobs to actually make the jump because, you know, you, you're quite well paid. There's not too much risk. Um, was it the opportunity in front of you or was it frustration in the world you're in? What, what, what actually propelled you out the door? Great question. I'd probably put it to... I became uncomfortable with being too comfortable. And I think those environments are really set up for you with have, you know, to, again, great environments for, for many people. You can build your careers in those network, in those networks. I think I was, I was interested in looking beyond that and outside of those networks in terms of to create real change takes a level of risk. And also, you know, Henry and I set out to, to create something of real value. And, you know, the product that we have in market today, it didn't exist the type of product we have today didn't exist. So I think we just we just found that so incredibly exciting. And, you know, and I think you hear a lot of stories of large enterprise wanting to create new products for their, their customers, you know, be it massive telcos or banks, whatever. It's a struggle, you know, to create a new product for, uh, for new, creating new value or tapping into, into white space, as it's called. It, it, the best way to do it is go and acquire a company who's doing it or create a complete skunkworks team outside of that company to build that product. Yeah, you know know what I mean? Well, Henry, let me bring you back in on that point. Um, What you have now as a product, how close is that to what you had in the back of your mind when you first made the leap? Because I, you know, I honestly thought you were, you know, you were adding a bit of, you know, bit of sizzle to it, but basically you were starting another agency. Um, And it took quite a while for it to, the penny to drop for me that really you're a software company. Well, so I've always had a background in software. So I think that's, that's the first, first thing is that, you know, um, Matt's had a background in avionics engineering. We both understand problems from an engineering and systems mindset. So I think that helps. When we started, we looked at, uh, looked at it through one of two lenses. Either we were going to be a consultancy, but where we were going to use technology to attack the pricing structure really, really well. So by way of example, you might do a consulting style project, but at a much cheaper fee, much less head hours because you had something producing the outputs much cheaper. Um, The alternative was pure play SaaS, but either way we were gonna be reliant on some kind of technology product at the core from the very start of the business. I think the penny dropped for us that we were going to go down the SaaS route when we started seeing usage numbers. So where people were coming into the platform largely without us, um, without us necessarily having to supervise and handhold. And and that's where we started to go, well, this is, this is really leaning a lot more towards SaaS. We weren't sure 
being honest, it, which way it was going to go. Um, just because of the nature of some of the industry, it is used to having a lot of support structures around it. But um, I think we decided about six months in when, uh, when, when we started seeing some of those early numbers um, to do that. The other strength I think of SaaS is it actually allowed us to work better into the ecosystem because what we don't really want to do is you don't really want to replace the ingenuity of a media agency or a really good media agency planner because you can't replace that with data. And the same goes with, um, the same goes with, you know, groups, you know, like creative agencies and things like that. So I think one of the good things about being a SaaS product is you can build for both the agency and the customer and that helps. And versus, you know, if I'm one of our competitors, um, they bring in consultants. And that's, it's a bit off-putting, I think, to agencies to have an army of consultants sitting there critiquing their work in PowerPoint. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't really like that. Whereas for us, you know, um, it's, it's a bit like install, installing Adobe or something similar. So I think for us, that's, that's where, why we focus on SaaS and those sorts of elements. I also just think SaaS is more fun um, as a, as a kind of a something to execute. Well, also presumably much more scalable as well. And we'll, 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 I guess, talk about that sort of, you know, what it contributed to kind of, you know, the the, the, the speed of the business's growth and everything. Um, let's just drill in a tiny bit into the product itself. Um, I guess some of, uh, some of our listeners from a, you know, hardcore MarTech background will have a pretty clear picture. Others won't. If you were describing this in the pub, what is the problem that you're, you're helping solve? Well, I think firstly, every marketer has more decisions than ever to make. We're not looking at decisions shrink, number of decisions shrinking. We're looking at number of decisions growing. The only platform at the moment that helps you make those decisions from a data-driven perspective realistically is website analytics. That's about as close as we get, which is why everything has been so digitally skewed um, and also uh, because the data around digital is timely and it's provisioned in a format that's accessible and it's, and it's quick and easy for an average user person to use. For us, we believe that the orientation of the market around website analytics basically has, I don't want to say stuffed marketing, but it kind of has. Um, and so what we, what we are trying, what we are building is marketing investment analytics. So a true actual end-to-end -end analytics platform across your growth that sits across everything. So Matt, um, could you think of a good sort of hypothetical example of a decision that would be changed by using the product? There, there is, might be. Yeah, no, great question. There are so many. And I think <clears throat> we're seeing a lot of use cases from our customers using the platform. And the decisions are, uh, we're seeing lots of different types of decisions, you know, the ones that we didn't anticipate how they were using the platform. But I'd, I'd say I'd say the one the one would be um, reallocating budget across channels that are underinvested that can, that can deliver a greater impact. So for example, we've had customers shift, you know, they've, they've identified $800,000 of, of budget for a particular campaign, and they were able to reallocate that with a high degree of, of accuracy into other channels that were under-invested under that the platform indicated if they moved 
this budget across these channels, they would get this. And, and how specific are we being with channels? Is it just like, okay, if you move from, I don't know, magazines to newspapers, to use two old school examples? That, that is an example. It, we can get down to the level of shifting budget across channels. So from, for example, from online video to out of home, etc., or even to at a geography level, um, across publishers, across uh, creative types, and also formats of advertising. So a level of granularity that to do that previously was, it, it took a hell of a long time, a hell of a lot of data, and really heavy on resources to, to determine that, where our platform now can deliver that that insight to inform that decision in, in seconds. And um, uh, which of the agency groups have supported you now? Are they all of the major, the, the major holding companies involved? We work primarily with customers, so our, our so you mostly it's brand side as opposed to agency side. Brands, brand sides are the, brand side are the people that will commission the contracts. Interesting. Yeah. So we certainly go direct. Um, we but we have a number of various. I mean, you'd say across most of the majors, we probably we have some kind of le- level of interaction. I'd also just say most of them are pretty good at provisioning the data as well. So they, they know what to give us and all those sorts of things. So it's um, it's been pretty successful like that. We generally see once it's installed, again, I draw the analogy to Salesforce and Adobe. Customer will normally install Adobe Analytics or something like that. And then following that, the agency will then start to use them and, and, and all those sorts of things as well. So they'll come together and coalesce around a platform. I think for agencies, it, it can be quite good because they're not kind of marking their own homework in a, in a sense. And so there's an independent platform where both the customer and the agency can come around and go, well, is what we did working? And if not, why not? Um, and, and, and start to make those decisions in a fairly impartial kind of way and, and matt how uh, how do you and henry divide your labors who does what between the two of you as co-founders good question i think you know henry spends a lot of time with the product and engineering team i think you know that's where where his strengths definitely lie and i think you know and i spend a lot, a lot of my time with with our customers and you know and, and guiding them to how to get the most out of platform and how to how to see value and help them help them make help them you know, uh, educate them how to make those decisions that we're talking about. So, you know, and then, and then there's a whole bunch of operational stuff that we kind of, we kind of share, but yeah. Now, one of the um, uh, side jobs to the main job recently has been um, doing a fundraising round, which, um, you know, is a massive job in its own right. So this would be, I, 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 I suppose if we talk about kind of pre-seed, seed, round A, the, the the sort of size of the round of fundraising you're doing would be a seed round, presumably, um, sort of one or two million, something like that, that you've raised? 2.4. 2.4. And how will you spend it? So right now, I mean, there, there, there are a few factors that, that dictated why we raised. Um, right now, our burn, we've kept our burn roughly flat, so we're not, we're not on a kind of a runway type model. Yeah, so you, were, you, you weren't highly profitable, but you weren't losing money. Correct, yeah. So, so we, net, we, hadn't, we hadn't really burned significant amounts of capital and things like that. So we weren't on a runway model or anything like that. But we wanted to move into two areas. The first is 
moving in and starting to data mine insights and things like that, just to make finding some of the areas a little bit easier and more responsive um, for our customer base and for our user base. Um, that drives usage up for us and also just starts to get, get, get us into the workflows. The second is what a lot of doing a lot of workflow integration. So getting back into Slack teams, all those sorts of things and building links back into those areas. Again, the reason why is to build, build a stickier product. And then the third is to start to release, uh, data management tools on the other end of the funnel to make the whole process of data collection organization easier. And we just want to basically make that free and make that the standard of, uh, of how people collect and manage enterprise marketing data. We think that's that enterprising uh, managing enterprise marketing data is a really hard and challenging thing for most organizations at the moment. Um, we look a lot to a business called Dovetail who does the same thing in UX research. Um, very, very large business now and, and, and very successful business. The way that they built a repository around UX research, we want to try to build the same kind of repository for marketers to use and manage that data. If we do those three things, we'll have one, made managing data far easier, more effective for the market, which is just good for us in the category generally. The second thing is we'll have provided a lot more value to customers through really strong usage-based value create automated value creation products as well. And then the third thing that uh, that we'll have done is we'll have integrated far more into the workflows and the daily workflows of of our user base than uh, that than ever before. And I think it's important to note our entire organisation is KPI'd on usage of the product, so none of us are actually KPI'd on you know renewal of contracts or and things like that. That's important to us, but the really important thing to us that we know matters is usage. If people are using our products, they're loving it, and therefore they'll renew. If uh, it, it, the same goes for kind of you know any other kind of business performance you look at, so I think it's a very software way to view the world. But that this raise allows us to continue to align to that and to invest in R and D in those spaces. And uh, what sort of people have invested this time around? What sort of backgrounds? Yeah, a. Varied, I guess they're you know, we're quite humbled by the, the the investors that have come in, and they do vary from being CEOs and uh, chair people of, of very large organisations locally and globally. Uh, there's there's um, there's you know, CEOs, former CEOs of very large media companies, and there's there's um, some founders of of some very successful um, you know product tech focused companies. So we're, there's, um, you know, we're, we're excited by the, the, the group of people that are, that are you know, getting on board and believing in our product and getting on, onto the journey. And are there any names you are allowed to share at this stage? Uh, well, we, we certainly had some really great support. So, I mean, the names, I mean, there are names like uh, Brody Arnold, um, who's the chairman of iSelect, um, He'll be joining our board and uh, Charlie Gearside. He was one of the co-founders of Eucalyptus. Um, Alexi Mitko as well, who's a co-founder of Eucalyptus. Um, we have Sir Robin Miller from the UK, um, who was the former CEO of EMAP uh, and chairman of HMV. And then also we had a UK quant fund, um, Bloomsbury Information Capital, um, who 
who anchored the round effectively for us. Um, so most of our existing inv inv investors also followed their money, um, which obviously helps um, and is a really good sign. So we're, we're pretty lucky that we've we've kind of found, we feel we found the right mix of technology, me media and marketing leaders, and also just business leaders. Um, you've also got a lot of people like, uh, you know, we've, we've been lucky to have Chris Savage, um, uh, people like John Sintras, uh, and, and, uh, and other, other kind of, of those sorts of, um, that sort of era as well. And I think earlier in your life, before we went off to another gig in Asia, you had Chu Chang as um, on your board or CEO? Or... I think Chewy pursued other avenues, um, <laughs> which, you know, potentially were better suited to what he wanted to do. So for, for, for those who aren't really um, familiar with how these sort of raisings work, you, you kind of go pre-seed, seed like you're planting a seed um and that's with a view to becoming big um matt how big can you get sky's the limit i think if we look at demand we're, we're, we're sensing a lot of demand coming from other markets including the us and i think you know in terms of how big we can get you know i think it's probably not just the amount of employees we are it's probably the, 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 the volume of media inventory money that's coming through the platform is what we're really interested in as well. You know, so the way you can do it is that, is that you can look at, there are 150,000 businesses in the US who are able, who are able to get this product. Uh, if you were to assume a 10% conversion rate, so you, know, you get to about 10% market share, that's 15,000 businesses in the US. There are further 1,000 businesses in Australia. Again, you do the same maths. I, we estimate that, you know, the, the category itself could be somewhere in the orders of 10 billion plus. Um, for us, you know, we envisage that various players within the market could be taking up to 500 million in recurring revenue. And what's your pricing structure? You sort of, you, you kind of alluded to the fact that there's a kind of entry level, free level. Um, where, where do you go from there? At what points do the businesses start paying and, and how? Well, so there are two conceptual models in, in SaaS at the moment. Um, model one, is what most people would be familiar with, which is enterprise SaaS, um, where you go in, you negotiate big contracts and things like that. And to an extent, I think that's that's where we have traditionally been as well. And that's usually priced like on the number of users, for instance. Or? No, so well, it can be, but um, but it's priced on a license for the enterprise and seats and features, basically. Um, where we want to get to is primarily pricing against. I would say, you know, usage and value. So we want to be able to collect the data and do that data management piece largely for free. Then if you'd like to switch on the unified war chest model, which is able to model all of your, all of your data very quickly and effectively, that comes at, its, at, at a cost, but it can reliably deliver this result. Then on top of that, we then want to have pricing structures that exist around, you know, if we see a low ROI channel, able to data mine recommendations around that channel and provide that to get it from A to B and basically give people that confidence. Or if there's a low performing brand or business unit, same again. I think for us, it's important to note we're not there yet. This raise 
gets us to that sort of model. But for us, it's, I think as a business, we want to be pricing around where value is created, not where reports are generated and things like that. And that, because ideologically for a business, that gets us much closer to customer value. And again, I come back to that concept of usage and things like that. If you're constantly priced against usage, if you're constantly incentivized against usage, and if your entire business thinks about usage and workflows, then your entire business will be more in sync with your customer base than ever, which is dangerous in tech if you're not doing that. Now, I guess you must have quite a nice sort of network effect as well, where the more data you, you, you get into the system, the more you mine, the more information you get. Um, Matt, I guess when you're talking to customers, one of the objections you must get is, well, what about protecting my data? How do you how do you make sure that you kind of um, keep walled off each individual client's information and data? How do you reassure them about that? We we obsess about that. So we we adhere to very strict standards around data security, information security, network architecture security, etc. And I think the key thing there is data segregation. So we have our we have our engineers and our entire architecture is configured. When we roll out what we call an instance of Watches for a customer, we have very very well defined architecture that that drives and manages what we call data segregation. There is no crossover of data. If there is, our automated notification systems just light up, and ultimately that's the that's the assurance and confidence we give our customers. And you know we work with we work with many customers across many categories including banking and finance and, and, and retail and every other, all the other major spenders of, uh, in, within advertising media. And, and you know, the, Australia especially has, has one of the, the highest standards and most strict, um, you know, uh, requirements around things like compliance and security. And of all of the insights that you've generated, what's, just, just give me one really great example. Oh, blimey, okay, that's interesting. You'd never have thought that about the ROI of a particular channel, for instance. Henry, you look like you thought of one. You looked forward at that point. So, well, I think there are, there are two. One, at home is incredibly cyclical. So one really interesting thing, I think, is that is that we see the effectiveness coefficients or what you call the time-varying beta of a of out of home varies across seasons. Um, particularly is obviously affected by the weather, but like um, our, our working theory is, for example, shorter days equals and, and, and shorter exposure times, right? So, so the actual amount of daylight has a, has a direct effect on out of home viewability, if as it were. Even with digital outdoor, for instance. Well, I think um, most most digital outdoor still isn't, you know, it's still not a dominant part of it, right? So I don't know if that would change with digital outdoor, it might, but that's an interesting one that we've, we've picked up. Um, right now we're, uh, we're exploring how long a Facebook scandal will impact effectiveness um, for Facebook. Ooh, so that's interesting. That's, that's something we're exploring. What, what, what are the early information on that one? Stay tuned. <laughs> um, but I, and I think the, the next thing, um, the other kind of interesting areas that we look at is one thing that's quite consistent is sometimes certain channels will have low ROI in a system, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're bad. Sometimes it actually means they're underinvested. So by way of example, 
um, some customer bases will, will maybe spend 5,000 or 10,000 in TV or 5,000 in TikTok or something like that. These, these quite visual mediums. Uh, and they tend to have perform quite poorly. Why? Because they actually need a certain amount of weight. If I buy one TV ad, it gets lost in the noise versus if I buy 500 TV ads in a week, um, suddenly everybody remembers me. It's like Harvey Norman, right? Everyone knows a Harvey Norman ad. So where would be the very last place you would spend your last thousand dollars based on everything you've seen? Oh, it, it's, it's a really like, it's a really dependent question on the actual business itself. So I'll give you a really good worked example of this, which is like, um, search is a really funny platform to be in unless you have one of two factors. It's hard to make money in search, uh, well, make profits in search unless you've got two things, right? One, you've got to have a better operating margin. So if you have a better operating margin, you can outbid other people effectively and search works amazingly to drive ROI in that kind of case. Um, the second, uh, is if you have no competition. So if you have no competition in search, again, it's an amazing place to be. So those are the two vectors in which you look at search. But if I've got three companies, all who can pay up to $100 each for a customer, and then I'm in Google's ad bidding system, every company will basically bid away each other's margins in the auction system uh, within, within search. So I'd say search is a really interesting example of how it's brilliant in some contexts, but there have to be really clear dynamics on which it works to drive high ROI um, versus how people conventionally think about search, which is as a as the kind of last element of it. It's very often it needs there's certain dynamics you need. Interesting. Now, obviously, you're still quite early in the journey, but equally, once you start doing fundraising rounds, mm. you know, you 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 have investors who are um, investing to see a return down the track, and they. They, they they want some pictures on the potential exit. What's the exit likely exit for you guys? Is it to get acquired by someone? Is it to to float as an IPO? Where what what are the options? Do you think? Good question. I think there are options. Right now, our focus is on in in building our product and, and evolving our road, product roadmap. There's a, there is absolutely an. Uh, uh, a complete obsession about our product and and usage, as, as Henry mentioned earlier. So I think while while an exit down the track of sorts might be there, it's right now our focus and attention is actually just just continuing. And where would you naturally sit in an exit? Would it be with like a I don't know an Adobe or something like that that already has a stack? Do you think? Or there's probably three to four categories of of buyers that you think about. I think one thing I'd just say is we're enjoying building this business way too much to think about an exit. Um, I think if you'd asked me three years ago, I probably would have had an exit in mind. These days, um, I think it's too much fun. <laughs> um, so, so I think that changes your calculus a bit, but I mean, your buyers are probably more in the data analytics and business analytics space, I would say. So, you know, I'd say groups like, you know, the S&P and those sorts of groups or Bloomberg, those sorts of companies, I'd say, far more than um, 
far more than an Adobe and or far more than a Facebook or a Google. And there's a reason why, because those platforms have execution built into them. Um, and because they, because you're trading on their systems or trading on their inventory and things like that, there's a natural conflict if they acquire us. So it's a little bit more difficult. Um, and you know, and that's also why it's more difficult for them to enter our space as well. So th- those two things kind of work hand in hand. It's strategically hard for them to enter our space. That's why they haven't done it or they haven't done it successfully at scale. Um, but it's also, it also means that our, our, buy, our buy profile probably sits more towards that business intelligence group. But that's a long way off too. That's a long way off. Now, maybe might be the last question. Matt, I'll come to you first on this one. From the outside, this looks like a story of just like a rocket ship taking off. Um, one of the realities of any kind of startup is it's never actually like that inside. You're zigging and zagging on that upward line. What's been hardest? Yeah, good question, Tim. If I, if I think about what's been the hardest, yeah, at the same time, the hardest have been the most rewarding. You know, so I think in the early days of Mutiny, Henry and I wore many hats. We kind of still do. You know, one day I would be the the customer lead, the 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 legal counsel, the 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 payroll manager, <laughs> looking at cash flow. Hey, yeah, thanks, Henry. <laughs> yeah, you know, and then um, and then the table tennis uh, champion. But that's another story. So I think you know, look, yeah, there, there's been you know coming from large companies. I think anyone when you get into a start, a startups are not for the faint-hearted. They really aren't. You've got a your your risk appetite. You've got to you've got to be brutally focused on the vision and where you're heading and the potential and and maintain that belief because the second that you let those little those little uh, what what do you want to call them the, you know your, 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 that that the, the the thoughts around negativity or the thoughts around that risk that's going to weigh you down that oh maybe we shouldn't do this you you you're gonna you you know there's no point in going forward you got to really you got to you're not going to be cut out for it so I think the hardest bits were not having that complete support team around you like you did in a, in a larger company. Now, as we're growing, we're, we're filling those gaps. But um, yeah, that's probably, you know. And Henry, what, what have you found the hardest? Startups, you have to just be extremely resilient and you have to effectively try, try to take every dog. I think the most important thing and the hardest thing is even if things aren't going your way, you've got to project an immense amount of confidence to everybody around you. Um, and that's the hardest thing, I think. I think, you know, giving security and certainty to others in a very uncertain environment is is a challenging thing to do and project, and it's a challenging thing to do mentally. You have to compartmentalise a lot. You have to... You have a lot of stress, stress associated with that that you can't let through, and that also creates a high degree of loneliness as well, I'd say. So I think, you know, the one thing I know is that is that certainty and confidence in decision-making and a, and, a, and a decision, even if it's not perfect, um, is better than no decision. Those sorts of things are really important characteristics to bring through. And so one of the things day in, day out is providing that certainty, that confidence, even when you are feeling at your lowest. And I think that is the hardest bit that nobody talks about is providing that certainty, shaping that certainty, giving that confidence to people around you so that you are able to tackle big problems, big industry issues, you know, big fires and all that kind of thing and do so with a focus and a clarity. 
Well, it's going to be really interesting from where I'm sitting watching what you do next. So Matt and Henry, congratulations on the fundraising. And uh, thank you very much for joining me. No problem. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for listening to The Unmakers from Unmade. If you're an unmaker, I'd love to talk to you. Email me, tim at unmade.media. Today's episode of The Unmakers was edited by Abe's Audio. I'm Tim Burrows. Before you remake it, you've got to unmake it. The Unmakers. Podcast edit by Abe's Audio.